Welcome to Identity, a series brought to you by ID Magazine. Join me, Osman Ahmed, ID's Fashion Features Director, as I explore the enduring legacy of some of the last four decades' most influential subcultures. When I first went to Harajuku, turn right, and then I see all these you know, girls, you know, just like uh, uh, Victorian princess, uh, wearing these you know, really you know, like skirts and dresses and bonnets and so forth. It was my reaction was like, whoa, this is a completely a different world. It was this incorporation of Japanese dress with Western style on the streets with the platform boots with the mini skirts with like bleached you know orange hair with frosty makeup I mean it was like it was really fun like it was still like visual K and gothic Lolita was really really happening still there was always something about it that was like mystifying to me there was still kind of some of the fruits going on but then it would fade a little bit later into tune and that was a joy of coming out to places like Shibuya and Harajuku, but yeah, it, it was just like full on. It's not New York, it's not Tokyo. Yeah, it's Harajuku. When you think of Harajuku, you think of fashion. In the 1990s, this area of Tokyo saw the rise of a unique style movement that would go on to change street fashion forever. Harajuku is a small neighborhood in the city that became a pedestrianized catwalk for Japan's most colorful, daring dressers. They treated the sidewalks as their own personal platform, almost like a prototype of Instagram in real life. However, little did they know at the time that this local pedestrian paradise would explode into being one of Japan's biggest cultural exports, inspiring artists, designers, and onlookers the whole world over. Here's Yunia Kawamura, Professor of Sociology at the Fashion Institute of Technology, who studied Harajuku subcultures firsthand. First of all, I also want to mention that you know, subcultures in, in Tokyo are geographically and stylistically defined. And the very first subculture that emerged on the streets of Tokyo was in Shibuya. That was in the mid-90s. And they were called Garu. The, the the main theme of their style was, you know, they're supposed to be very sexy, hypersexualized, and at the same time, very cute. The concept of cute is something that you find in all of the Japanese subcultures, but it's not just cute. In the case of Shibuya, it's cute and uh, sexy at the same time. They wear short skirts, they show their legs, and they're very provocative, and sometimes it's even promiscuous. But for these girls, um, Shibuya was almost like a mecca. Gyaru was one of the first hyper-stylistic subcultures to emerge from teenage girls in Tokyo. But just a stone's throw away in Harajuku, girls were playing with a different concept, kawaii, the Japanese idea of cuteness. Harajuku emerged almost like a, an antithesis of what was happening in Shibuya. But for, for the girls in Harajuku, it was very, very girly. You know, they strive to make themselves look like a, a doll. The look is unmistakable, and we've all seen it. Ruffles upon ruffles, huge billowing skirts edged with lace, its wartian curls topped with a giant bow or miniature hat. This is what we know as the quintessential Lolita look. The girls in you know, on the streets of Harajuku at the time 
dressed like a you know Victorian princess. If you look at their styles, you know they wear these you know um, big skirts with layers and layers and petticoats. And again, you know the concept of kawaii is always important. But for for the girls in Harajuku, it was kawaii and uh, hyper feminine. And I also want to point out, you know, a lot of people mention uh, Vladimir Navko's uh, novel. It's called Lolita. You know, it came out in 1955. And, uh, you know, it has a really disturbing story. It's a story about this middle-aged guy, you know, in a romantic relationship with a, you know, young young girl. But, you know, this term Lolita, you know, as far as Japanese subculture is concerned, has not, nothing to do with this book. And the, all the girls, the members of the, you know, subcultures, many of uh, Lolita subcultures, they don't know anything about this, you know, this novel. They're, you know, way too young to, to know that you know, there was such a, you know, book. The Lolita style and name may have been taken from two very disparate Western cultural imports, but this isn't something that was necessarily novel. Since the post-war American occupation of Japan, the cultural exchange between Japanese teenagers and the West has been hugely influential on their style. Josephine Routes, Japan curator at the V&A Museum in London, takes us back to the beginning of this relationship. A lot of people might have just kind of one idea. They might just kind of associate it with like Lolita fashion in the 90s. But actually, the history really goes much further back. One of the reasons is that it was kind of one of the parts of Tokyo where there were more foreigners living, so it was slightly more diverse in that sense. And it was particularly in the post-war period in the kind of 1950s and 60s uh, that young people started kind of congregating on the streets, going there to kind of get dressed up. Um, And at that time, for them, the kind of like latest fashions was like Western sportswear often known as kind of ivy style, you know, this kind of preppy American look. And so they were going to where the Americans were, and the Americans were in places like Ginza and Harajuku. Hey, where are we? We're in Harajuku. Changes in Tokyo after the war weren't only cultural, but architectural. Traffic deaths had soared in Tokyo as the city was rebuilt and cars became more common. So the authorities acted to create what were known as pedestrian paradises peppered across the city. You can probably guess where the most famous of them was located. Absolutely. So, yeah, in the 1970s, um, parts of Harajuku were pedestrianised. And so, yeah, groups of young people would come, they'd go to be seen, they'd go to dance. There was one group known as Bamboo Shoot tribe and they would get dressed up in these really bright colors and kind of practice their disco dancing kind of in the way that you know you might see people doing tiktok dancing now but what's particularly interesting about how to do in the 1970s is that it's not just the day trippers that are coming into that area and i really see the 1970s as the kind of like pivotal moment in in making harajuku the kind of fountainhead of of fashion, but particularly kind of innovative street fashion. Um, And that's because you suddenly had this like creative class who were moving into the area. Um, So it wasn't just kind of suburban kids who were coming in for the weekends 
um, to show off their style, but also you had stylists and designers and photographers moving in and they were mostly living in this one apartment building called the Central Apartments. Um, So they were living there, they were working there and they were kind of, they were meeting up and exchanging ideas in the cafe there, which was Cafe Leon on the ground floor. So I think that's what really enriched Harajuku. By the 1980s, Tokyo's creative scene was forming its own unique styles, with magazines like Cutie and stores such as the legendary Milk Boutique to support this burgeoning network. Designers like Comte de Garçon and Yoji Yamamoto were dressing Japan's young tech tribes who had cash to spend. But it wasn't to last. Japan's economic bubble burst in the mid-90s. A glossy, wealthy, corporate future was no longer an option for these Japanese kids, leading to a sense of alienation from the culture they'd grown up in. A lot of these people who were part of the, you know, the kind of leaders of this had spent time in London or New York. You know, they were actively, like, going to these kind of punk epicenters to experience it and to live it and learn about it. It wasn't just this passive kind of copying. Because it's interesting, this idea of it shifting from Japan looking out to the rest of the Mm -hmm. world, absorbing things in, to actually the rest of the world looking to Harajuku and Tokyo and Japan, you know, this back and forth. I mean, for you, what was the point that that kind of shift happened or that kind of dialogue began to emerge? I mean, it's really the 90s uh, where this shift really starts to happen. So this is the the end of Japan's kind of bubble economy uh, when the country goes into, into recession. And this notion that typical life path for a young person is no longer available to them. And so that's where you see 90s street fashion just become even more like creative and expressive because there's nothing left to lose in a way. There were all sorts of looks on display. First came Urahara, a countercultural movement that was influenced by skate and hip hop. Then Wamono, which saw teenage girls redefine the kimono in innovative and exciting ways. Vogue Japan's Tiffany Godoy moved to Tokyo in the 1990s and caught the tailwind of this fresh creative breeze. Oh yeah, once upon a time in the late 1990s is when I arrived in Tokyo. That's when kind of things were still in full swing. There was a lot of different types of cultures going on. So in Shibuya, you had the Gyaru around 109. Um, You had still Urahara was kind of like, was kind of happening. Um, Then after that, it would kind of shift to Nakameguro. Still like Visual K and Gothic Lolita was really, really happening still. Um, so it was like a really, really diverse uh, youth culture scene happening at, at that time. It was very exciting. For Tiffany, coming from the US, she could see straight away that there was something uniquely Japanese about what was happening in Harajuku. Yeah, I think it was, you know, it was very tribal and very insular and um 
you have to look at where the economy was at that time and how everyone is adapting to it. So enjoying youth culture before you had to go into being a grown up, becoming a salary man, getting married, you know, this was, it was a very like kind of rigid approach to living. So I think there was this urge to, to go for it completely uh, at that time. And also there was just, yeah, the spirit of the streets and it was the spirit of what was going on. It was like, well, really about expressing, saying a lot through what you wear and a real freedom in that. Mm. Through these specific hypervisual style identities, the Japanese teenagers frequenting Harajuku were truly revolutionizing street style. It wasn't long before someone took notice and decided this moment was too important to go undocumented. Shoichi Aoki started his cult street style magazine Fruits in 1997 after witnessing the beginnings of a fashion revolution on the streets of Harajuku. Long before social media, Fruits would become the medium that broadcast the ever-changing styles of Harajuku to the rest of the world. We spoke to Aoki-san through a translator. I start to wonder what is the real fashion, the clothes actually person is wearing, and what is the Neanderthal was wearing back in the day. So fashion is the base of human's culture. Uh, to be a human, you need to have something to wear. So then um, the, when human was start to wear clothes, that's a part of art. And then no one was do, showing those things at that point. So I thought that would be interesting to express and show that humans can be creative or be true art. From 1996, the Harajuku street started getting quite interesting. At that time, fashion was the brand and that considered as very trend and cool. However, the young people start to wear slightly something different to that concept. And I start to find that's very interesting. And everyone starts to feel like what's next. There's one photo that finds this fashion revolution, and you may have even seen it. In this now famous image, two girls pose for Aoki-san, one sporting buttercup yellow hair, and the other in a stylized kimono and traditional woven Japanese flip-flops. Underneath, she's wearing a Western-style skirt and an Adidas tracksuit top. This look was like nothing he had ever seen before. So at that point, uh, the London fashion street was interesting. And then hairdressers from Harajuku go to London and then they bring back the London street fashion into Japan. And then they start to mix with Japanese kimono. And that was totally original ideas. So uh, at that point, like the people are still wearing um, high brand clothing, but these two girls was 100% original style. And around them, they had like five to six other interesting style friends. And then I, I think like those groups start to influence me, but then also slowly 
it starts to expand. Every six months to one year, things change. And I don't even know those girls, what they're doing or what they're wearing now, because it's constantly, there is always a new people come up and they leave or disappear. And then there's new people come. So it's, it's seeing sort of progress, um, developed. And then um, the fruit style also start to go big and wild everywhere across in Japan. And then people start to follow their style. But those girls who were originals, Don't go anywhere. We'll be back after the break. In part one, we heard how Harajuku's style was born. Then, in 2001, the seminal Fruits book was published, and that look went global. For many in the West, this was the first time they saw what was going on in Harajuku. And for Josephine Rauls, changed everything. I remember that moment so clearly. I remember seeing that book for the first time and just being blown away by the the sheer variety of styles I was seeing. And I remember just, you know, like so many people around me started to try and imitate some of the fashions they saw in that book. At the time was very new because, you know, fashion photographs were all like staged and, you know, the models are like professionals and they'll be wearing like all these, you know, high fashion brands. And that was, you know, the, that was a definition of fashion photography. Yunia Kawamura again. Shoicha, okay, you know, went out there, you know, in the streets of, you know, Harajuku. He, she, he thought that these, you know, uh, girls are really, you know, fashionable. I was just mesmerized. <laughs> you know, I thought, wow, <laughs> I didn't expect this. And that's how I got into this topic. So I think his, you know, magazine and the book, you know, that came out of these magazines had a lot to do with, uh, you know, uh, the, the dissemination of uh, fashion. Japan was already on the radar of hipsters globally. The love affair between the UK and Urahara culture cemented by James Lavelle and his influential Mo Wax hip-hop label. But a mix of Harajuku subcultures and brands, Decora to Lolita, Hysteric Glamour to Superlovers, was soon to rise to the top of the charts via a much more mainstream pop star. Here's Tiffany Godoy again. The major force label was really, really important, which was done by like with James and, and Hiroshi and Tycoon Tosh. That was like this catchball between like the UK and, and Japan. And so that's the distribution point, you know, into the through the UK is really what kind of got things moving around for one segment of the culture. And then Gwen Stefani's album was like a really huge homage, remix. I mean, I remember when I did my first book, that was kind of with the help of, you know, Harajuku Girls and, and Gwen Stefani, which then was just like a hybrid of lots of different stuff. Um, you know, whether that's like a hysteric glamour, like cuties, like via, you know, the mid mid to late 90s, like girly culture and of all of these different ideas of, of Japan. And then, of course, the relationship with like Pharrell and Nigo is obviously really, really important in, in how and, and also Murakami 
and his work with Louis Vuitton all kind of hooks everything together with this new generation of people and like hip hop culture. With her 2004 album, Love Angel Music Baby, Stefani brought her take on Harajuku to a generation of teenagers more familiar with MTV than Japanese subcultures. Suddenly, a movement that had emerged almost a decade before was being rehashed by Western fashion labels, gaining attention the world over. Designer Yoon Ahn moved to Tokyo in 2003 and remembers the cross-cultural pollination as well as the styles that were still percolating through Tokyo at the time. The early 2003 scene is probably what most of the people are very familiar with. It's kind of like going into the later part of the fruits and the tunes and, you know, all this, you know, uh, Shibuya 109 gals and like um, gyaros, like you call them like, you know, the guy version of that and kind of like height of like J-pop too. So it was a very exciting time. There's just a lot of like, you know, um, also kind of like the Y2K, you know, all that aesthetic was like, I, you know, you see it everywhere with like all the things that you see making a full circle in fashion was like on the streets with the platform boots, with the mini skirts, with like bleached you know, orange hair with frosty makeup. I mean, it was like, it was really fun. For Yoon, the fact that she could pick and mix the looks, labels and music was part of the joy of Tokyo in the new millennium. Yeah, I mean, because like for me, like it's always been about music. So, you know, at that time it was like, you know, still quite height of J-pop. So, you know, just kind of watching that J-pop scene and then, you know, just being in Harajuku is a different scene than like Shibuya now too. Because so culturally, the way kids dressed in Shibuya was um, a little bit more, I guess, sexier versus Harajuku was much more mixed up and colorful and more um, a really fun, like, you know, like almost kind of like a candy shop, I think. I mean, because it was just a totally different scene. And then if you go to another district, it was just had a different scene too. So me just moving into the city and still being kind of like a student and being um just getting to know different people with just total openness it's just like it's just kind of a little migration of things but you know we all go through these phases of like one you know you go through like that thing and then next thing i know like i was like so into rockabilly for some reason so i started picking up all the um like vintage pieces to doing the hair and like all that stuff so it just kind of like kind of reflects what music I was really into when I look back at the photos that I have. But it's also still like it wasn't like trying to be the caricature. It's just like that was just my way of kind of learning about it by picking up the fashion, kind of getting into that role of it, which in some sense, you know, a lot of these cultures that we see in Japan was imported. So we did have to kind of do the cosplay thing to kind of like put ourselves in that character to learn. And once it became like extension of ourselves, then that's when I think people start to take that form and the fashion and everything into something else. So that in itself, I think was a little bit of a different, um, very like Japanese way and Japanese like approach of like absorbing the things. And um, it, it was fun. However, the mid-2000s candy shop look, as Yoon described it, was about to be devoured. 
Since the district was depedestrianised in 1998, it was undergoing immense change. By the time Gwen Stefani's Harajuku Girls hit the charts, the neighbourhood was no longer a petri dish for exciting new styles as it once was, and was instead attracting camel-wielding tourists. Here's Josephine Routes. So you suddenly had people who didn't necessarily have any interest in fashion going to Harajuku just to take photos of people. I moved to Japan in 2007 and I remember these, the people who were on the program I was on just saying, you know, let's go to Harajuku and take photos of these crazy chicks. You know, like it was, it was not done out of any like appreciation or understanding um, or admiration. It was just purely seen as like tourist fodder. What then happens on top of that is the Japanese government starts seeing ways to try and capitalise on this popularity of these fashions. So what had until then been very much a kind of underground scene, very much a protest to contemporary Japanese society, the government then started trying to capitalise on it through the Cool Japan initiative. Uh, And as soon, of course, as soon as that happened, it kind of almost lost, (laughs) it lost its way because as soon as you... And, and that's really when I think, you know, probably rents went up, people started not going necessarily to Harajuku, moving out to different suburbs, and it, it just kind of was the death knell. In 2017, Soichi Aoki folded fruits. His reasoning? That there weren't enough well-dressed people in Harajuku's photograph. Like all good things, the spectacular explosion of unique style coming from Harajuku in the 90s and early 2000s had come to an end. But in the age of the internet, nothing really dies anymore, does it? So hi, I'm Shahan Asadorian. I run a project called Archivings um, that I've been working on for 10 years. I'm kind of like a black market archivist. <laughs> yeah. As a teenager in the early 2010s, Shahan began collecting old copies of Fruits and other Japanese fashion magazines, becoming entranced by what he was discovering for the very first time. Well, I think that there was always something about it that was like mystifying to me uh, at a young age. Like I would, I think I would go to like bookstores and I would see things. That's kind of where I realized that there was something like this going on in Japan. But he wasn't alone. Shahan is part of a generation revisiting the subculture two decades on and recontextualizing it for a new audience through the lens of social media. Yeah, I, I definitely have seen people being more interested in it. And I think that that's great. I do think that it has informed a lot of like younger people's styles at this point. I do think that the sort of mixing of many brands and many years and decades. And I think that's cool. Uh, Although I do think that, you know, people who dress like that now, they're way more recognized and celebrated for their choices. Not to say that these people in Harajuku weren't. I, I often think about the people photographed in these magazines and think, you know, like, that's how some influencers dress now. And they're kind of paid and celebrated to be that way and fit into that sort of mold or or idea or they're expected to be very fashionable they're expected to like 
walk around outside of runway shows or attend runway shows and and be seen and stuff and these people in in the magazine perhaps they were dressing to be photographed but i i often like imagine that they're also just normal people and they're not necessarily trying to be famous for who they are they're just being themselves and isn't that what makes a subculture attractive to outsiders witnessing the authenticity and dedication integral to forming a genuine community around one culture. For her book, Fashioning Japanese Subcultures, Yunia Kawamura spent years visiting Harajuku, getting to know members of the Lolita subculture. And they said, you know, I asked them, you know, do you come to Harajuku just like that? And they said, no, because many of them, you know, came from the suburbs so they didn't want to stand out. You know, if you dress like Lolita, of course, you stand out, you know, in the suburbs, in the countryside. So, you know, they have, everyone had this like small, you know, suitcase. And, you know, they said they'll go to like, you know, fast food restaurant like McDonald's and, you know, they will change, they get changed in a the bathroom. Then they, you know, go to this, you know, bridge. So they just hang out there until like, you know, four o'clock in the afternoon, they go back, back to McDonald's and... <laughs> change back to their normal clothes and go home. And they're not the type to like, you know, stay behind until late at night and go out drinking. You know, they're they're like, remember, they're, you know, Victorian princess, right? So they don't even drink coffee. And you know, the authentic members of Lolita subculture, they don't even drink coffee. Tea is okay. They like sometimes have like a, you know, tea parties. <laughs> I did, you know, manage to get to know them enough to, you know, join their tea parties and like, you know, listen to what they're, you know, talking. And sometimes you know, they go to all these, they rent a space and they take pictures and they exchange their pictures and that's it. There's something undeniably wholesome about the ways that these teenage girls interacted with each other, which is perhaps surprising for Westerners. You see, subcultures in the West tend to be associated with a louder form of rebellion. In a way, beauty of Japan is like people like to keep things very private and just to themselves. Like it's not about just making things big all the time. We all as humans also know that we're all different. I think that um, as a society, people don't come out and like really kind of shout. Um, I'm not talking about vocal, but, you know, in a way like in West you know, people just kind of demand their uh, acceptance of their presence or whatnot. People don't really do that. But I think the way they did it was through fashion. Because it's like, they don't need to say anything. You just show up in that look and it's like in your face and and you have to accept it as it is. And I think that's why the fashion really played a big role in people's self-expression here. And also to tell people like, hey, I'm into this. I listen to this. This is who I am. What started as a small local community of teenagers in Tokyo has by now become one of the most distinctive and influential subcultures in the world. Arguably a real-life precursor to social media, Harajuku's impact, its labels, its stores, its designers, its street style stars, its aesthetic, has truly changed the global fashion industry. And it continues to inspire kids today. There is this phenomenon which I call like deprofessionalization of, you know, the industry, so to speak. So, you know, before the emergence of all these youth subcultures, you know, everyone was clear as to 
right? Who was a fashion photographer? Who was a, you know, like a marketer or designer? But that really changed completely. I mean, if you look at, you know, the stores in Shibuya or also Harajuku or any other places that were strong in new subcultures, you know, in Tokyo, the sales girls became very important. They were almost like celebrities. They became really famous, you know, so the girls would like go to a particular store because they wanted to meet these, you know, sales girls. And they'll be, of course, wearing, you know, their particular brand. And they'll give you advice as to how to coordinate their, their you know, clothing items. So they are very much involved in the actual, you know, designing process. You know, what we're seeing now, luxury brands approach to denim, t-shirts, sneakers was kind of what was what all of these guys were doing back in the day. And I think that was such a fascinating take on all of this stuff that was, you know, just kind of really daily wear for for a lot of people that were in hip hop that were also looking at luxury brands. But then, you know, the Japanese were, there was just this incredible attention to detail and also the whole idea of limited edition and, and the collaborations and really small runs and stuff like that was a very Japanese phenomenon just to avoid things getting too hyped. Um, so there was a lot of thinking that has shaped everything around like music drops even and, and luxury fashion approaches and marketing. So what's next? We thought we'd give the last word to the man who brought Harajuku style to the world, Shoichi Aoki, who's always on the lookout for the next big thing. I start to see Harajuku style, like food, like early Harajuku style recently, but I'm expecting to see something new, not like that, those copy. So personally, I want young people to have their own like, new style. And I'm looking forward to see that. Identity was written and presented by Osman Ahmed with research and additional writing by Ailey Duffy. Production assistance by Amelia Phillips, Marta Abramaitite and Sean Griffiths. And art by Callum Glenday and Alexandra Talarcher. The audio producer was me, Robin Lieburn, and Identity is produced by Podmasters for Vice Media. <laughs>